of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. The year was 1978. It was the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Michael Horton, now a professor at Westminster Seminary, California, said, I was 14 years old. I was at the conference. That's some of the age of some of you kids. He said, I had long hair, a silk shirt, a disco suit, and a puka shell necklace. I love it. One of the speakers at the conference was James Montgomery Boyce. Young Michael Horton went up to Dr. Boyce and said, I want to be a reformer too. Dr. Boyce offered to share his sack lunch. There they are, eating lunch together. Years later, Dr. Horton was speaking at that same conference, starting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals with him. And Dr. Horton wrote this to me this week. He said, the amazing grace of God. And that man, Dr. Boyce, a gracious man. Why do I bring up this story? Because today we want to talk about what Pastor David Strain says he believes to be the great need of our day.
How would you answer that? He says, there's no question in my mind we need a revival. What does he mean by that? Not revivalism. Not a system that you produce where you bring about certain ends that you think you can. A revival he means by is a renewal of spiritual life. A modern reformation, return to the word of God. A renewal in the gospel. You don't schedule these things, he says. But when the gospel is clearly proclaimed in all its fullness, God exercises his redeeming power to bring about renewal in his church. That, he believes, is the greatest need of our day. When God works by the Spirit in the hearts of sinners, when he does something like we read here in Ezekiel 37, when we seek the Lord by his grace, when he awakens us to see our need of Christ anew, when we have new zeal to love and serve the Lord. That, he says, is our greatest need. Today we pick up in part four of five weeks on the doctrines of grace. We began, all humans made in God's image. Glory is offered to Adam before the fall in the covenant of works. Adam sins. He breaks the covenant. In Adam's fall sinned we all. After the gospel, the glory of God is revealed as it's promised to us in the gospel of Jesus after the fall. We saw in part two how God from eternity chose his own in Christ. That covenant theology is tied in with the doctrines of grace. The covenant of grace is made with Christ and in him, the elect. We saw last week that Jesus died for his sheep. He didn't make salvation possible. He accomplished it. And now today, that redemption that has been accomplished is applied. Within time, God effectually calls sinners from death to life through the gospel and by his spirit. What does this mean? Well, irresistible grace is the head, but new birth effectual calling, intoxicating grace, good news for weary sinners, good news for those who are shattered by life, good news because nobody is beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace, of God's life-giving word. God is the God of surprising, unexpected grace. We want to see that today first in our need for saving grace. Ezekiel. Children, have you ever found a stranger book? Do you know that the book in the days of the Old Testament Jewish rabbis would often not be allowed to be read by a young man until he was 30 years old? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Why is that? Because of how bizarre this stuff is. Pastor Keister was here and preached on the beginning of the book earlier this summer. I commend him and his sermon to you and his work on this, which is excellent. Ezekiel lived about the time of Jeremiah. So we're talking 600 B.C. He's trained as a priest, but he's carried off away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. Where, kids? To Babylon. How can you be a priest when there's no temple? How do you worship God in a foreign land? Where is the hope when it seems like all of God's promises have died out when it looks like we're cut off. 
That's Ezekiel's day. 20 years he prophesied. Judgment against the nations. Judgment against God's people. They're in exile. And God says to him in a valley. See this in chapter 37? Near Babylon. The picture of a valley is exile. Behold. And what does he tell him to behold, kids? Do your mom and dad ever say to you, behold the trash. <laughs> it is full. Behold the dishes. They're dirty. Well, behold here, look at a valley of dead bones. As Pastor Peter Wallace says, it's like a mass grave. Think of the days of World War II and the bodies that are put into a, a grave. Or if you have seen the Lord of the Rings, remember Gimli? The crunching sound beneath his feet as he's walking is the sound of dry bones. Skeletal remains. The birds have long picked off any flesh. The sun has bleached the bones. He's in a valley. And these are very dry. See that? So they're not mostly dead. They're not just dead either. They are very long dead. This is no recent battle. A defeated army. Contempt and shame. The worst thing you can do in terms of shame is to leave a bunch of bodies of the army you defeat unburied. That's the picture. You're supposed to be shocked by it. And a priest who never could touch a dead body is told to walk among the dead dry bones, which would go against the civil law of the Old Testament. Who are these bones? Not just the northern kingdom that Assyria took in 722, not just the southern kingdom that the Babylonians were taking in Ezekiel's day, but the whole house of Israel. Generation after generation before Ezekiel had turned aside to false gods. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is looted. God's glory has left the temple. We read that earlier in Ezekiel. The judgment of divine rebuke has come. The curses of Deuteronomy 28 are playing out. Deuteronomy 28 verse 25 says exactly this will happen. Dead bodies will be food for the birds of the air. They're under the covenant rebuke of God. This does not mean that there are no believers still. God always preserves a remnant. Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, others. They're singing God's song in a foreign land. It's lament. It's exile. And it's not the first time this has happened. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled east of Eden. Adam breaks the covenant of works. All of us now are born separated from God, dead in sins, and in exile. It's a symbol of all of humanity. We're not confused. We are born haters of God, lovers of self, lovers of sin. And God says, okay, here's these dead bones, Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? How do you think he would answer? What does he say? Can these bones live? Oh God, you know. A humble answer. 
This is not a question of God's power, whether God can raise the bones, but of God's will. Will he raise the dead bodies? Will Israel live again? And as Strain says, if God were to come in renewal of the gospel, how would this come to the church today? Verse 4, Ezekiel, go preach your best sermon. You're kidding. Really? As one person says, although ears have many bones, see your ears, kids? There's all sorts of bones there. Bones do not have ears. Go preach to these molding, dead, dry bones. Preach to them. It's hard enough preaching to the people of Israel who are hard-hearted, but these bones, they're dead. The Bible talks of what's called a general call, external, universal, a call to all people at all times to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Near the end of the last battle, the last of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, do you remember remember Aslan kids? He spreads a feast before these grumpy old dwarves. But the dwarves don't believe in him. So they're suspicious of anything that he would do for them. Aslan raised his head, shook his mane. Instantly a feast appeared. Pies and pigeons and goblets of wine. But it wasn't much use. The dwarves began to eat and drink greedily, but they couldn't taste properly. They thought they were eating and drinking the things you would find in a stable. This tastes like a turnip, one said. Another said, it's like a cabbage leaf. As they raised their wine, they said, ah, fancy drinking water out of a trough of a donkey. Never thought we'd come to this. When the dwarves finished their miserable meal, they congratulated themselves for refusing the king's royal banquet. And like these foolish dwarves, loved ones, many refuse to enjoy God's invitation to the banquet. Their eyes are blind to it. Their taste buds are sensitive to the world, but they have no taste for Christ. Is Lewis picking up on Luke 14? I think he probably is. Jesus tells us in Luke 14 of a banquet. All these guests are invited. He prepares it for them, and he sends out the invitation. And what do they do? They make excuses. I just bought a field. I need to go and see to it. i got to deal with the dirt. The field will be there tomorrow, won't it? The second excuse. I just bought five yoke of oxen. i got to go try them out. So you bought ten oxen. You never try them out. You don't see if they can even plow. What kind of a strange excuse is that? That would be like buying five used cars, not even knowing what they look like, what kind of car they are. I just bought them. It's an excuse. What's going on? They're focused on wealth and work. And the banquet of heaven is just unimportant to them. The third excuse, Luke 14. I got married. Doesn't even ask to be excused. I'm not coming. Jesus illustrates that good gifts of God, like work and family and job, can become in our hearts idols. He's not talking about evil things. It's good to go to work. 
But he's saying, where is your priority? In Luke 14, it's my oxen, my land, my spouse. The deepest reason for why they didn't want to come to the feast is that they just were absorbed in themselves. What does this have to do with me? I've got things to do here. And loved ones, it's a reminder, as the call of the gospel goes to us, for all of us, pastors included, do we love our house, our technology, the praise of people, our leisure, our time, our vacations, our car, our cabin, our money, our sports, our politics, our entertainment, our family, more than God? God doesn't say disregard those things. But he's talking about how easy it is to make excuses. The Sabbath day is way up there on that. Of course we take vacation, but we never take vacation from the Lord. Even if you go somewhere on vacation, you go to church, wherever you are. It's so easy to make excuses for not worshiping with God's people, for not serving God's people, for neglecting God and his word. Many hear the gospel, but like those dwarves, they're so filled with other things, it just it goes in one ear and out the other. Many people will join a church, profess their faith, and yet it's just an external belonging. It's an outward call. It's an intellectual thing. It's a formalist kind of thing. And it reminds us there's a danger of false security. A danger in thinking, I was baptized, I maybe walked an aisle, I said a prayer, or I joined a church, but I don't really trust in Jesus. Christ calls us to faith and repentance. Even Esau had tears, but his tears were not tears of repentance. So the question is this, why, if the gospel is offered externally, freely to all people, as it is, do some respond to it and are saved, and some reject it and are lost? That was Jesus' point of Luke 14. Why is that? These are matters that are crucial at the foundation of our understanding of the doctrines of grace. The Armenian says it's something in the individual. So the individual determines his or her destiny. That's what Dort is responding to. The teaching of the remonstrance is full of conditionalism. A conditional election based on a foreseen faith, a conditional atonement, based on the exercise of faith, a conditional conversion based on willing in us. You might think, this sounds confusing. Theology matters. The details matter. The devil is in the details, actually. Very important things when it comes to these issues because what the Arminian theology says is God gives prevenient grace. That means a grace that comes before something, a work of God that he does for everybody. So he gives every person the grace to respond to Jesus, enough grace to make it possible for anyone to choose Christ. There are problems with this, humbly speaking. We want to critique it rightly. First, if it's just an external grace, it will not change a dead heart. But if it is an internal grace, then why is it effective and effectual for some but not for others? Why does Jim hear the gospel and believe and trust in Jesus, but 
Sally doesn't. Is it because Jim is smarter? Is it because Jim comes from a better family? Is it because Jim is wealthier? Is it because Jim has a, a more humble heart? Do you see the problem here? The bigger problem is this. Where in the Bible does it teach prevenient grace? This universal grace is given to everyone so that everyone can respond. The answer is it doesn't. The synod of Dort is not responding to a minor issue. The problem of sin requires a doctrine of grace that is sovereign and effective. It must be irresistible because those dead in sin would always resist grace. Secondly, God saves sinners. If you're wondering what these five sermons are about, this is it. God saves sinners. Israel is incapable of responding to Ezekiel's preaching. The book of Kings drives us to this conclusion. King after king, idolatry after idolatry. Israel must die. And they're dead. Ezekiel, speak the word of God to them. And so Ezekiel cried, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Your toe bone connected to your foot bone. Your foot bone connected to your heel bone. Your heel bone connected to your ankle bone. I'm getting no response. Do you know that song? Maybe you don't. There's a fun little song that deals with that. This is where it comes from. But it's like a scene from a movie. These bones begin to rattle. They crack. Tendons come on them. Flesh. And it's all by him speaking. And it happens. No dance or gig or secret formula. The bones have come together, but there's a problem, verse 8. There's no breath or spirit in them. So as David Strain says, they've been reformed intellectually, but not revived. That's a very interesting point he makes. We've moved from dry bones to dead corpses. There's still no breath in them. So God says, prophesy again, Ezekiel, this time to the breath. And the language is very similar to how God made Adam. He formed him from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into them, him. And now it's happening again. And the word for breath and wind and spirit in Ezekiel 37, in the Hebrew is the same word. Really interesting. Meaning, God is breathing his physical spirit through this breath, this wind, as Ezekiel prophesies, so that dead bones might live. That's what's being said. Paul might be referring to this in 1 Corinthians 15. The last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. This is what's called the effectual call of God. The general call goes out to all, the internal, specific, effectual call goes out and God produces what his word itself, by his spirit, does. Meaning, regeneration. Effectual calling is regeneration. God brings dead people to life. Here's a story one person tells. A man and a woman are going for a walk. They hear a faint call. The woman 
turns around and says, I think this person's calling me, and goes to see them. The man says, nope, no one's calling me, keeps walking. That's the difference between the external call and the internal. Romans 8.30 is the verse. Those God predestined, he also what? Called. So, like the woman in the story, those God calls effectually, not only hear the word, but respond by trusting in Jesus by faith. This is the language of the Bible. That's why this is important. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So God uses means to bring this about. This last week, I was at a body shop with our son. I hit a deer. I should have either sped up or, or I, whatever I did, I, I shouldn't have hit that deer. It was kind of ridiculous, but thankfully we were okay. So we go to the body shop. Our six-year-old loves cars. He loves fixing stuff. So he wanted to see behind the scenes, how does this get fixed? What are the details? What is happening here? And so it is with us in Christianity. By the grace of God, we should love to hear the story of salvation. I can't hear it enough. We should pray that God will help us to believe. By the preaching of the word and the prayers of God's people, sinners are brought from death to life. Loved ones, we should pray and expect God to do this. Expect God to fulfill what he has promised he would do. The seed goes out. The external call does not regenerate, but God gives new birth by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not a ghost. The Spirit is not a force. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, a person, divine, eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful, equal with the Father and the Son in divinity and glory and deity. What happens, Ezekiel 37.10? When Ezekiel does this, a living army of these dead bones is standing on their feet ready to serve the Lord. Twice before in Ezekiel, he saw the majesty of God. He fell at his feet as though dead. The Spirit entered him, invigorated him, raised him to his feet, ready to serve God. Ezekiel is renewed, and now Israel is as well. The New Testament shows this. Lazarus, come out! Jesus spoke the name of Lazarus because if he didn't specify, everyone would come out of the grave. That's the power of God's word. God speaks and it is done by his spirit. How do you know whether you're elect? We've talked about that before. Have you responded to God's call? Noah, build an ark. Noah believed God, he built the ark. Abraham, leave Ur, go to the land. He did. It wasn't because he was smarter or more holy. It was because of God's sovereign spirit. The same with you. The act of God in electing, the work of Christ in atoning, the power of the Holy Spirit in calling. That's why we have hope. It's by grace we have been saved. Loved ones, this is the essential doctrine of the new birth. John 3, Nicodemus, what must I do to bring about this new birth? Jesus says, no, 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 Nicodemus, you're missing the whole point. 
You must be born where? From above. That's what born again means. Otherwise, you can't see the kingdom of God. So what must I do to be regenerate? That's the wrong question, isn't it? We cannot make ourselves be born again any more than we had anything to do with our first birth. Did you and I choose when we would be born? Where? To whom? No, it was irresistible. So the new birth by the Spirit of God is irresistible. Monergistic, fancy word, meaning the power of one working. It's not us and God. Why? Because we're dead in our sins. We're not reaching out to grab a life preserver. We're dead on the bottom of the ocean. Regeneration is the sovereign, supernatural, unilateral, irresistible grace of God. From above, by the Spirit. We're not born again because we believe. Do you understand that? Regeneration precedes faith. We believe by faith because God reaches down from heaven and grants us the new birth. The Holy Spirit then works faith in our hearts. Like lighting a fire. The Holy Spirit lights a fire in our hearts called faith so that we trust and rest in the work of another. That was redemption accomplished last week, wasn't it? The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ so we have all the righteousness of Christ by grace imputed to us. We have sins forgiven because of what Christ has done, redemption accomplished. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that what? No one may boast. Regeneration is being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. A spiritual resurrection. You are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Christian, that one day will issue in a physical resurrection. Your body will be raised. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Why does God do this work to save sinners? Because he loves them. God doesn't love us because we love and obey him. He loves us when we were dead and enemies. If you're a Christian today, it's not because you and I are better than someone. It's not because you were smarter than them that you made the choice. It's because God raised you from the dead through a miracle of his grace, by the gospel preached, by the Spirit bringing you from hating God to beholding the beauty of God and loving him, from like those dwarves feeling like the word of God is the most boring turnip that you've ever eaten, to seeing the banquet of the glory of the heavenly supper of the Lamb. If we are to live, God must intervene in our lives like he did in these dead bones in Ezekiel. Same thing. Not by us trying to be good. Making us alive is the work of God from beginning to end. Not something we earn. Not something we deserve. 
what then about my will? If this is true, doesn't that mean I'm a robot? I'm just a puppet. I don't have a will. That's the caricature of those that respond and criticize the Synod of Dort, which I hope you see we believe is the teaching of the Bible. That's why we're preaching it, not because of Dort, but because of the Bible. Here's how Kevin DeYoung says. Maybe you love peas, kids. I never did. Pea soup was the worst meal I ever could imagine. Maybe you love it. If you do, I'm glad you do. That's good for you. Did your mom and dad ever say to you, kids, you're going to eat every one of those peas, whether you like it or not, open the bajo, open the mouth, you're going to eat it. You're not moving until the pea is gone. Maybe they didn't say that. That's not irresistible grace. God does not save you by forcing grace on you against your will. He doesn't obliterate your will. He renews your will. He changes your will. He transforms your will. He gives you a new heart. It was stone, now it's flesh. You're a new creation in Christ. He penetrates this hard heart. He opens it. He softens it. He circumcises the heart that was uncircumcised. He doesn't force you to believe by his raw power against your will. He changes your will and effectually persuades you and gives you a desire for him that's contrary to our sinful nature. You say, well, what about the Philippian jailer in Acts? Yes, regeneration may occur suddenly and dramatically. Or it may be slow and imperceptible, like Timothy Without it, none of us will enter the kingdom of God. We don't get it by baptism. We don't get it by our works. We get it by God's sovereign grace. But we do not always even experience it. Whoa, why is that? Some of you might. C.S. Lewis, 1931. He's talking to two of his friends who were among his inklings the Literary Society at Oxford. One night, they talked all night. One of them was J.R.R. Tolkien. Lewis's stubborn arguments for atheism were demolished. It took days of ruminating and meditating for his conversion to be complete. He says, on November 12th, C.S. Lewis and his brother, he says, we were traveling by motorcycle to the zoo. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When we reached the zoo, I did. He says, I was the most reluctant convert in all of England. I was kicking, I was screaming, I didn't want to believe. God was up to something. The hound of heaven was after him. But what this is saying is regeneration in some people might be that. You can point to the moment. But for others, and God changed his heart, he changed his will, He didn't drag him after he was converted. Lewis wanted to believe, right? See that? But, kids, some of you might be growing up in a Christian home. You're baptized. You never remember a day when you didn't believe. By God's grace, praise God for that. You might not be aware that regeneration has happened. You don't need to know when you were born again. You don't need to know the hour when you were born again. If you do, praise God, but you don't need to. It's necessary to know that you are born again. That you're trusting in Jesus now. And God worked regeneration sometime in your life. You don't even know when it was, but that's the point of God's regenerating 
Spirit. Third, what are the results? Do you say, I feel dry? I feel like a dead bone. I feel spiritually lethargic. There are seasons of that, yeah. The psalmist laments. David cries out. God responds. See that, Ezekiel? I have spoken. I will do it, says the Lord. I'm going to raise Israel from the dead. Which Israel? North or south? Jeroboam or Rehoboam? Which kingdom? In eight to nine hundred years since the Exodus, it had only been a hundred years when they were together, north and south. What does God say? I will raise a united Israel. How's that? Which king? Which temple? God says, David will be the king. Wait a second. This is later in Ezekiel 37. David, he's been dead 400 years. David's going to be king. This covenant is the covenant of peace. It's everlasting. God's purpose is a people that he has in Christ, who is the first fruits of the new Israel. On the cross, the wrath and judgment of God is poured out on Jesus, our substitute. His body is dead in a valley of dry bones. But like the dead bones did not stay there, Christ didn't remain in the tomb. The resurrection of Jesus is God's definitive answer to this question. Will these bones live? Yes. Jesus, the first fruits, he is the Israel that was raised up. He is the king that was promised to sit on David's throne. And in John 20, the resurrected Jesus reenacts the valley of dry bones when he, the word of God incarnate, breathes on his disciples in the upper room. And what does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. Dear Christian, this is pointing to our hope in the resurrection. If it were not for the resurrection of Christ, we would have no hope. But because Christ is raised, we who are united to him will one day be raised. The engine of the train enters the station. All the boxcars follow. This is the new covenant that Ezekiel was prophesying of. What does this mean for how we live? What does this mean for sanctification? What does this mean day by day as I struggle to die to sin and live to righteousness? For that, Lord willing, you'll have to come back next week. That's where the canons of Dort are headed, aren't they? For now, we are reminded that when you were born from above, this was not just something that happened at one point in time. It continues on eternally. New life begins at regeneration and continues on forever into glorification. Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, what a promise. By grace, we have been saved. We have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ today. Renew us, revive us, restore us. Bless the preaching of your word in this city and around the world. Oh God, may we today know of your great love for us in Jesus. And may that have an impact in how we live for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.